0: Dude, we nailed that awkward uh, that awkward goodbye by the way. So good work.
1: <laughs> still still recording.
0: I know. that was this, this is gonna was my design. Your, this is gonna
1: be your this is gonna be your intro.
0: It might be. It might be. <laughs> Howdy, what's up, listeners, and welcome to episode one of Ride On Ramblings. This is your host, Brian Buell, and for this week's guest, I have a dude that I've known for a really long time, my whole life, actually, because he is my older brother, Michael Buell, and I'm going to be interviewing him about his mountain bike history and his racing history, as well as the transition between being between the tape and then now... The president of Banshee Bikes USA. So come take a ride on with us as he talks about the do's and the don'ts, the highs and the lows, and what it's taken to get to where he is today, and a little bit of other fun along the way. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. This is Ride On Ramblings. Uh, Here goes. This is
1: your entire podcasting career starting right now, ready to go, no pressure. Right
0: now, ready to go, yeah, no pressure, knock it out of the park. All right, welcome listeners. Today, my guest is former downhill mountain bike and enduro gravity racer, as well as global sales manager and or president of Banshee USA. And he's also my brother. This is Michael Buell. He'll be rambling with us today. We will be talking about many things, maybe just kind of going back in the history of our upbringing together, all the shenanigans that uh, we would get into, how pissed off he would probably get at me routinely, being the younger brother, (laughs) our foray into racing, the outdoors, and now his current position uh, working within the mountain bike industry for Banshee Bikes. So welcome, Michael, to Ride On Ramblings
1: happy to be here as your first guest awesome thanks
0: for having me hey you know what you're the only one that uh, uh, wanted to do this so anyways let's get going (laughs) (laughs) that's not true actually but i figured it's only proper you know we started the whole mountain biking thing together we might as well start this mountain bike podcast thing together so how did we get into mountain biking
1: well i think more specifically you uh,
0: this is all about you by the way this
1: Goes back a lot longer than probably we even really remember. We were lucky enough to grow up in a rad place in the Colorado Rocky Mountains, and you know, you introduced me as the older brother, but I also had some older older friends in the neighborhood, which was pretty awesome because we basically started riding our bikes for fun like as soon as we could. I remember like some of my youngest memories are just ripping laps around the garage with little like bank corners, which I don't even think we'd fit around now, like. On anything because it's like not, there's not actually enough room to ride. But when we were kids, we just like ripped laps around it all day. And then that progressed to making little tracks in the yard. And then we got a little older, and went up and started building tracks a little bit further up into the woods. Had some super cool little like circle tracks. You know, this is just beyond the regular ride we did, but we had our little spots that we'd go that were super fun. You know, kind of building bank turns and jumps. And obviously, we were, I don't know, young single digit age kids at that point and jumping was pretty much all we cared about trying to get get our wheels off the ground started pulling some tricks and then we had the devastating moment where one of the neighbors decided to destroy our track and break all our tools for some reason because that's what you do pick on kids i don't know don't know why but he didn't he didn't like our didn't like our situation there so we just took it as uh encouragement i think and moved a little bit further out into the woods built a better track it gave us a good way to ride in between, kind of got our cross-country riding at the same time so we could go back to where our jumps were. Pretty much, we rode, rode our bikes, like, every day, whenever we could, right up until about the time we got our driver's licenses. And then, so I guess we were either riding or fishing. That was That's what we did. We rode bikes and we fished. <laughs> um, got our driver's licenses, kind of took a step back from maybe riding for a little bit, just because there was, like, other stuff to do, things to explore. But that didn't last too long because bikes were too awesome, so... You know moving on into later high school and college years still riding a ton got exposed to going to moab and you know riding different climates and types of terrain and trails and just never stopped loving it and then I remember you know summer after i graduated high school i got a job pumping septic tanks which was awesome <laughs> working on the honey wagon making some cash being kind of smelly probably uh and then I basically saved up that whole year. You know, we're still living at home, you know, obviously. So all the, the basic needs were taken care of. So basically that whole summer I saved up and bought myself. We'd always had, you know, bikes and stuff, but kind of some more basic stuff. And that summer I saved up and bought myself a Rocky Mountain Pipeline, which was like my first big purchase I ever made on my own. I worked, you know, for months to save up and do.
0: Just for a moment, I'm gonna I'm going to interject here. So yeah. Up until the pipeline, we were rocking what types of bikes and uh, what did that pipeline that purchase was, do for you?
1: Well, I guess I should go back a little bit further. I got my first five speed when I was sometime young. It was a Christmas present. I remember looking out under the tree in the morning and like basically lost it. I was so excited. It's got a five speed. It was an old what was it, Huffy probably. I think was sick. It I was didn't great. have a shock or anything. Yeah, I remember our friends uh the hickeys got some uh some bikes when we were younger and they had shocks on them i remember hopping on that and just like running into things just because you could and like feeling that front wheel move out of the way and it was like the coolest thing ever and then we kind of got into some uh some, it was, i had a gt avalanche that's what it was gt avalanche se i believe back this would have been late 90s that bike lasted me for a few years all the way up until 2002 so that's basically what we were ripping i don't remember exactly what you had you had maybe a giant or something similar maybe another gt so basically just like old school hardtail bikes which is essentially the gravel movement which is starting over again like these new gravel bikes if you can compare them to exactly what we were riding we were just called them mountain bikes in 99 i think with the exception of some new disc brake technology and stuff but geometry and everything's pretty much just like the classic mountain bike so that's what we were doing when we were hitting all our uh, all our jumps and everything in the tracks that we built in the woods. It was basically just, just these old like essentially what is like a cross or a gravel bike now, trying to get some super sick flat tabletops and, and bar turns going. So then yeah, stepping into that uh, that Rocky Mountain Pipeline was like a total game changer. You know, and I was saving up. I was going off to college at CU. And was like super pumped about all the urban riding I was gonna do because I'd been watching all the like New World Disorder movies and like everything, everybody hucking all the stair gaps and stuff and thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So got that bike with some travel, had four or five or six inches of travel in the rear end. You adjust it with a skewer, like taking your rear wheel off, you pull the skewer to move it in between. Although I think I pretty much just put it at six inches and let it rip. Did all the super sweet huck to flats and stair gaps and thought it was the coolest thing ever we would be out at night riding under the lights till midnight just like trying to see what we could jump off of basically again getting back into that whole scenario and that and bike is... kind of was the start of my serious riding in a way as far as like kind of taking it to that level beyond just like just trail riding you know
0: this is when you're getting into downloading videos i remember you know you were watching some of the uh Neural disorder and like crank series videos and you had those on the computer and you're exposing me to that. And then you on this bike made me relatively jealous being the younger brother. Um, pretty much yep. you led the way and I just followed. So oh, yeah, yeah, I got, I got a Rocky mountain switch the next year and one up to you I on that. I was
1: super, <laughs> super jealous of, cause that was actually the bike that I wanted the whole time, but I didn't have enough money to buy it. So I was like, Really? Younger brother gets the switch. What's this crap all about?
0: <laughs> Come on. It's it's tough being the older brother, no doubt. This this yeah. sto- this story is going to basically just prove that point probably over needs, and over.
1: He needs to get a job, but get, get me the switch. I'll sell him the old pipeline. Oh, It was fine though. <laughs> the pipeline was sick.
0: That probably but yeah. We were total bike. The
1: way. Total bike nerds for sure. I mean, I think everybody that gets passionate about anything in life in general is kind of nerds out on it at some point and that we were definitely there with the bike thing. I think the, the kid I was in the dorms with called me Mike with the bike because I like I was always in and out of the dorms with my bike because I rode it everywhere to class, never rode the bus. <laughs> well,
0: so so that that's kind of the bike that started it all. Now, when did you discover downhill mountain biking and when did you get your first downhill mountain bike I
1: actually remember it pretty clearly and it was like a couple weeks before my 20th birthday and yeah it was Tyler Smith and he's like was like dude you gotta check this out and we go out to the the parking lot and uh he pulls this like downhill bike out of his out of his car and I was like dude what the heck is that that's so sick and like I knew about it like I knew it was a thing we'd gone and watched like the world champs you know in Vail I want to say in I was probably 94 when we were super young. It wasn't. Greg really Herbold. Like, yep, got Greg Herbold's autograph and everything. I was super sick. So, like, I always knew it was a thing, but I never put the, like, association together that, like, downhill mountain biking was something that, like, normal people could do. Like, to me, it was always something that the pros did. Like, you know, they, like, where the pro mountain bikers, they got to do this downhill thing. And then all of a sudden I saw, like, one of my peers had a bike, and he started talking about how he was, like, going to these races and stuff. So it was like, it was really, it was Tyler and then Bergen uh, was also into it too. And I was like, that's so rad. Like, that's, that's exactly what I want to do. Like this whole biking thing, like what I've been doing, this getting into the urban stuff, living in Boulder, CU and all the riding and stuff that we were doing and kind of trying to push that side of the, the progression and the, just what we thought was fun, you know, like downhill bikes just like encompassed all of that. But at that time too, there was, it was, has sort of been 2003 in the fall and the only way to ride a downhill bike like in real terrain was to race like there wasn't bike parts you know or like the, there was some shuttle trail stuff if you like were in those crews but i didn't really know about that yet you know actually some of the old movie parts are like that gold hill stuff you know
0: you know matt, matt to in those those it. guys were too cool for you anyways at the time oh yeah, yeah. i'm kidding matt hey kidding. <laughs> all right <That's> right <laughs>
1: We weren't, we, you know, we weren't in that crowd. We didn't even know those guys yet. All I knew was like, if I want to ride this downhill bike, like I got to go to these races, right? That's where you do it. That's when they run the lifts. That's so rad. Let's do it. And I remember talking to a, I found a friend at CU who had done a little bit and he was like, yeah, dude, you better be ready. Those, those race guys are fast. Like they're really fast. Like you're probably going to get your ass kicked. And, and I was like, well, cool, but I still want to try it. And so it was, I think it was like a week before my 20th birthday, you know, I talked to our parents into splitting this downhill bike with me that I found at the fixed bike shop in boulder bought it from shiny mcgovern
0: shout out Shawnee mac
1: yeah it was a, uh, it was an old yeti dh9 with the dorado on it and i was definitely of the mindset that more is better so he had this monster t hanging on the wall next to it and i was like how much more to switch that out and he's like what are you gonna do with it i was like i'm gonna take it to angel fire and race it and then race on it next year he's like well you know the dorado is probably fine and i gotta give him a lot of credit because he tried to talk me out of this but i was like no i want the bigger one so i think he like <laughs> gave me like he charged me like 300 bucks more to switch out and put this like new monster tee on it, which brought the total weight of that bike up to like 52 pounds. It was the (laughs) sickest thing ever. It was just a total monster truck. So got that thing slapped on there. Um, rode it like one time up at Caribou up here above where we live and like, just like jumped off all the retaining wall stuff I could find to try to figure out how the thing worked, loaded it into the car and went down to angel fire and entered my first race. Like really the first time I'd ever even ridden a bike like this. And, uh, It was that final descent format it like was super muddy um first run i had like a huge tire blowout and like wrap up in the like chain stays and everything and i think i lost that run by like 20 minutes or something basically like i actually like aired down the tire and fixed it i think on the run because i don't really know any different at that point in time plus i wasn't going to trash my gear like i had i didn't have have any spare parts i didn't have tires like had like the tubes in the bike and basically what i showed up with that day I think I wrote I think I raced with a backpack on so I could fix things if I did have a problem.
0: I'm pretty I'm pretty um, sure that you that. actually uh, you timed yourself and uh, you, you did it as quickly as possible, like a pit stop. Oh,
1: I totally did. I looked at my watch, you know, and I was like I was like, okay, well this sucks, but I still want to see how I would do. You know, and I got to the bottom. I was like, I think I was actually pretty close, you know, like so then was it later in the same day, you know, I got all my things put back on and I was like, I'm not risking this blowout thing again. So I actually got a hold of like 20 zip ties. And on my rear tire, I put 20 zip ties around it to hold it to the rim so that I could avoid hopefully not having like the tire blowing off the rim again, which was what caused the flat. Like I didn't actually get a flat, like the tube never went flat. It just like blew off the rim. So, um, zip tied like the crap out of this tire onto the rim so that I could hopefully make it through the next lap. And then I guess I was racing like sport class because that's what you do when you just show up. You know, I thought about racing beginner. I was like, no, I'll just go sport. I think, I think I know how to ride bike. And. I ended up winning that second run by like a minute on like a seven minute track in sport class. And I remember looking at the results at the end of the day and there's these two guys kind of ragging on the guy that was at the bottom of the list. And they're like, look at this guy. He sucks. He lost by like 20 minutes, but I knew that i had, I did lose by 20 minutes, but at least I had won one of the runs. So like that was my, my first taste and the whole winter passed. And that next year I was like, well, there's this mountain States cup series. And I, I think I want to try to like go for the overall, you know, and like race all the races and, Went back and forth on if I should do sport or expert or whatever, so decided, hey, you know, screw it, let's go for expert, it's going for the whole year. Showed up, um, battled the bear out by Downeyville, which is like a super sketchy dual cross track. Ended up racing that on the pipeline because that was like the best thing I had for like a, a slalom bike at the time rather than the downhill bike. Um, and that bike actually ended up being my four cross bike for that whole first year, which was super sick, too um and yeah that was it like i got, got on the podium at that race uh kind of went from there uh we did the whole series ended up kind of clawing my way out getting the, the super cool leaders jersey that they did back there uh at that time you know and i guess that would have been 2004 mountain states with cup was like kind of growing into like it's like heyday there for a little bit back when it was you know kind of like one of the premieres like grew into the premier series there once the national series dropped down so it was pretty fun to do that whole tour and I think I did the first race or two kind of solo ish. And then it was right about that time that you were like, hey, I want to play and started showing up and coming to these races too. And you got that, that, uh, uh geez, the other Rocky Mountain Slayer and started racing downhill on that. We got you, got you set up with the Super
0: T on the Dude, Slayer, was, which is I was just, definitely... just about to say, not the Slayer, not the Slayer, it's the Switch. But oh, you yeah. got the, oh, the Switch, yeah. So when, when I put the Junior T on, it, it was, was a junior on. T. Yeah, oh, it was, yeah yeah it was the junior t but you know what toss that sucker on i felt invincible i thought i was going to dominate the world and uh yep. i had a very very eye-opening experience at angel fire my very first ever race and uh yeah, yeah just, just like team. you just was got my final
1: descent team. was it the <laughs> final descent one or was it the summer one that you came was, down to it was,
0: it was the very uh, like first race of that that next year and i got my butt handed to me i think i I was rocking like a 90 millimeter stem on that sucker i actually think that i (laughs) put like a 90 or 100 mil on for some reason in comparison to like the 70 or 75 mil that i had on there um not to go down the rabbit hole too much but i think tyler smith and bergen parks were having a little bit of fun with me with that one but uh i showed them years later
1: yeah right
0: uh we'll we'll get back to so that's kind of how you started your, your career.
1: You know, yeah, it was very, just kind of game on from beginning. there.
0: And uh, yeah. basically a late start, too. You were almost 20 years of age when you know you really kind of found that you had a ski racing background. So the gravity-oriented world wasn't too foreign from you. It was just on a bike instead of on boards. So, yeah, uh, totally. And that was just part of it,
1: you know, going to college and just missing having something, right? Like that whole freshman year in college, I was like, I don't really know what I'm doing. We've always ski raced, like there's always been something to train for, something to like work towards, some competition in life, and so it was like super natural to flow into downhill from that because it was just like it filled that void and that, and also, you know, gave like, we had a total like head start because of the skill sets so, that crossed over from skiing you know it's an it's an incredibly similar sport in a lot of ways on like how you actually train and race and the mental side of things and the vision and all of that that kind of translates into bike so it definitely gave us a leg up as far as jumping in and you know being able to compete pretty quickly so that was cool that's a good point to bring up there and then and yeah after that it was pretty much just game on you know you, you joined in and we started traveling and racing and that was like the heyday that like the, the most fun thing, I think of my whole career was showing up for these these events in these places that we've never been to before. And for some reason we always had it timed for no, like it was probably just total coincidence, but I remember we'd pull in like 20 minutes before dark to like every race and we'd just like spill out of the van. And we were getting usually with like Bergen and Tyler and uh, we'd just like put on, well, if we were smart, we'd grab a headlamp. Usually we weren't smart enough because we were you know, like 18 to 20 year old kids. We just run up the mountain because all we wanted to do was go check out these courses you know and end up like up at the top of the mountain in the dark and come back down and like walking the track and flashlight and those are actually probably some of my favorite memories of racing was, was those like like track walks you know showing up to these new venues and just exploring new parts of the world
0: Overanalyzing the heck out of Schweizer. Was, oh, yeah mountain.
1: yeah totally first run down the next day i was like i come and like trying to stick that plan that we'd come up with and i tried to double this thing on the super steep place and then just like packed it in so freaking hard because i just like had all the confidence in the world but like didn't actually know like how physics on a bike really worked all that well yet so it's just like trying to execute this like totally overanalyzed ridiculous plan that didn't just like totally body slam myself remember that one pretty good
0: <laughs> i would agree that uh that was that was some of my most fond memories too is just kind of the the adventure of it all everything was new all the locations were new pretty much everywhere we turned up it was just a new experience uh and and it was the heyday that was 2004 and 2005 when we were kind of you know really just traveling on a shoestring living out of tents i mean we did we lived out of tents still for our whole career but uh everything was new the pits were legit there was some decent money still in the sport norba was still going pretty strong you saw sam hill greg Minar, steve pete like those individuals were surrounding us and they were influencing us and uh so i think we benefited a lot from at least getting to experience that before that all went downhill pun uh, intended, but um, am pun- fully intended. <laughs> <laughs> but just to yeah, just to give a quick kind of like glance at your career highlights. So you started racing at age twenty. You joined the collegiate mountain bike team, and you became a national champion in two thousand and five. You competed at numerous UCI downhill World Cup and EWS events. Represented the United States at the Pan American Games in Colombia in two thousand and eleven and some other career highlights being that you founded team geronimo in 2007 partnered with banshee bikes in 2010 and that'll eventually led to you landing your dream job with banshee bikes we'll get to that later i just kind of wanted to put that out there just to kind of give our listeners a little bit of a timeline in terms of your career stemming from 2003 2004 until present day definitely a lot going on in there um before it's we switch... to think
1: about the timeline <laughs> it, <laughs> it, seems it like it was just yesterday
0: it does before we switch gears and, and you know kind of turn our attention towards the industry i just want to um, just just put a question out there uh, is a hot dog a sandwich why or why not
1: <laughs> keeping me on my toes here some more uh, rapid fire i'm going to go with no it's its own thing a hot dogs a hot dog
0: i have to and agree
1: before you switch gears i have to tell one more story don't worry i was gonna get back to it sh- go for it this whole showing up this whole showing up at the late in the day i just uh I had to get back and get one more of these in here since we're rambling and that's the whole point of all this that's so we went on that rad trip to europe in 2008 where basically everything that we owned broke and we basically tried to keep our bikes running for eight years or sorry um for six weeks through this whole Europe trip and it was our uh basically second and third ever World Cup attempts and whatever and that's a whole nother story but this whole just yeah, I had to tell this one since we were talking about showing up late at night you and I at this point had lost basically the other four people that we started the trip with because the attrition rate was high and I think it was just the two of us still together a couple of weeks maybe halfway into the trip and we went to tall age Germany I want to say it was and it was right in the middle of the euro cup soccer you know tournament for that year and you and i jump out and we we're, were hiking the track just like we always did at night and the place is deserted and it looks like kind of like it's it's an older you know german town here you, know, you start having like these feelings like you're in eastern europe or something like that there's no one around and we can't really understand what why what's happening what's going on like where is everybody like is there something we're missing here like this is just kind of weird and eerie and then all of a sudden it just starts like sounding like the whole freaking countries exploding sounds like bombs are going off everywhere and we're just like okay this is weird like should we stay up here on the mountain like should we not be here what the heck is going on in europe right now that we don't know about you know and we don't have like and then we're like oh wait it's it's euro cup germany must have won and then all of a sudden everybody's spilling out of the bars and restaurants and houses and everything and they're all honking their horns and driving up and down the roads and like just bombs like it was the it wasn't bombs it was fireworks and so then you and I ran down. And we jumped into our rental car and joined in the like celebration. We started cruising up and down the strip, honking our horns, cheering with everybody. Germany won the game. But anyway, I just had to say that one because that was something that I figured was part of this rambling. I Had to tell our listeners about well, about that particular adventure. Let's
0: Seems, uh, let's, expand. let's expand. Let's <laughs> expand let's expand upon the European adventure, but just kind of preface it a little bit. So you said that was our second and third attempts at uh, World Cups. Our first ever world cup attempt being 2006, 2006. Anne. we weren't even yep. we, we weren't even professionals then there was this class called semi-pro yeah and... but we
1: totally made a clip <laughs> of synopsis because they were filming nathan rennie and we just so happened to slide into the clip at one point so we've totally got some fame out of that one
0: thanks uh okay. <laughs> <Appreciate> yeah, <it. laughs> yeah like prepare was us.
1: except for just us we're like oh that was one of us
0: how unprepared were we, were we for that? I mean, that was an incredible eye-opener, huh? Yeah, that was definitely a huge learning event,
1: you know, and we showed up probably completely over our heads, you know, underdogs. We were still technically semi-pros, but we had got in to, you know, decided that was the direction we wanted to go. We wanted to try this whole World Cup thing. That was our goal. So we are like, well, here's a North American event. We can get qualified for this year. I don't remember if we did it through a trade team or if maybe we just didn't need points that year um there's probably a reason why they require points now so you keep the clowns like us from just showing up and trying to race but
0: <laughs> we were serious you know, clowns that year we, man it was you know, it was not good
1: we were so we were on rotex then right i think that yeah. was the, the first year that we were on the full production rotex probably the shout, out
0: shout out to uh john sullivan yeah. for uh for getting us uh, our first mountain bike sponsorship through rotex yep. X.
1: super awesome bikes it was a great great ride um yeah we showed up and Sleeping in the parking lot in Mount St. Anne, like the only people camping at the World Cup, and just like what we just thought was normal. Yeah. We had our little village with our like little Colorado crowd, and like the far off parking lot where security guards weren't going to kick us out because that was usually our like entire challenge. Like I think that was actually harder than racing sometimes at some of these events, especially on the East Coast, was figuring out like where we could camp where we weren't like kicked out like vagrants. You know, and the, the security guards telling us, "Well, why don't you just get a hotel room?" And we're like, "Well." It's just it's not gonna happen like we're, we're on the road 100 100 days a year you know it's like we that that budget just is not part of the budget so you know camping out at the parking lot of mount saint Ann and trying to race and figure out what to do and getting smoked and but it just having a blast at the same time I had a total blast you know trying to trying to figure out how we were going to get qualified for these events and you know i don't i personally you got a lot closer later on i personally never really made a solid crack at it um just for whatever reasons, you know, it's just, there's no excuses. It's, it's might be mechanical or whatever, but it usually comes down to lack of preparation, you know, whatever that might be leading into it, making sure that we were ready for those. But that was awesome. You know, that's Indiana event that was like a total blast. And I think we put that on to the end of being out there for, uh, other like national level events. If I remember correctly, we were at, uh, uh Vermont before that. And that was a super cool time because we raced to vermont did the mount snow stuff there um we had been out at platycle earlier in that trip that was like a huge just awesome like i don't know i think we were on the road for like six or eight weeks for that one too cruising around the suburban um, us open yeah i remember actually that one we got to meet uh brandon fairclaw and uh clay porter and ben reed because they needed a ride from vermont up to saint anne you guys um,
0: are welcome by the way uh <laughs> formal thank you in the in the mail for that one <laughs> i think they did i think we ended up we still Actually. had one of their, one of their prizes
1: or something that they won at vermont that we never got back to them some <laughs> like one of their mugs or something like that because it was awesome dave that. camp had his little his little sedan or whatever it was and we had the trailer and we packed that box trailer like literally like you know you, when normal people like b- pack a trailer and then we pack a trailer like where you put the first level layer in and then you just put everything on top of it and we we're like well you guys need a ride we'll figure it out so we squished them all in there. We were in the suburban. We're driving between uh we're driving between Vermont and St. Anne and we had the little D V D player thing Vermont. in the suburban. And we went to Bromont first to stop over in Bromont. And I just remember it being hilarious because Clay's in the backseat and we put on one of his movies and everybody just starts like razzing him and be like, This is the worst movie I've ever seen. Just giving him a hard time, which was hilarious. At least we <laughs> thought it was hilarious. He probably doesn't even remember. But that's why like, that's why I didn't
0: like us. No, I'm just, yeah. just
1: no. <laughs> that was a good time yeah so we all went up hung out in bromont for a couple days um had a great time riding just seeing new places went off to saint Anne, gave it our best you know probably seated at the party than we did at the race but
0: i think we did yeah that was my highlight was uh was steve pete um almost uh running me over at the the party that was that was a career highlight and he looked at me and (laughs) I made shout. eye contact with your uh, hero. I did. I made direct eye yep. contact with Steve Pete in 2006, and and pretty much you know career highlight. But uh, yeah, I just want to state that one of the one of the themes here, at all of our World Cup uh, um, forays, suspension and breaks, we never really yep. had best luck uh, in 2006. And that's- our suspension would start at eight inches and by the end of the run would be down at six inches Do you remember Uh, those air forks by marzocchi
1: yeah it was one of their i forget which one it was but it was their first air spring i think and the negative spring or whatever was getting something was sucking through so yeah we'd every single run you'd go from eight inches to five inches of travel
0: and we had Um, flat bars too that year
1: oh yeah that was the era where like lower stock was better for whatever reason and we just like jumped in the, the bandwagon of it and that was actually a learning moment for me right there, too, you know, to talk about like actually not doing well at these events, but picking up a lot. I remember it was it's kind of funny how some of these details come back, but I was on the gondola with uh, Mikel Pascal, didn't really talk to him at all or anything, just kind of hanging out. But I remember looking at my bike and then I look and, you know, it was like flat bars were all the rage, super low front end. And I look over at his bike and his front end is like eight inches higher than mine because he's got like rise bars and all the stem spacers. And I was like, huh, that makes sense. We're going really fast down a steep mountain, why the hell am I running these super flat bars? So I think I switched after that, you know, started putting in some more stem spacers and higher bars. And then I don't think I ever went back to that again. You know, the industry itself kind of comes and goes. And I've always been a high bar guy ever since that. And gotta tell, I learned that from Mr. Legend Mikel Pascal because of that gondola ride there. Just like kind of to think for myself almost was the lesson there. You know, don't do what everyone else is doing just because they're doing it. Do what feels right and works for you, especially when it comes to bike setup. But it's funny that you segued into that cuz that was one of the things I was thinking about that I wanted to touch base in this this episode is uh kind of the just the whole if I could pass along anything to like the the current generation of riders, you know, it's it's free isn't always best and if you're really trying to compete at the top level, like understanding the equipment that you're committing to is massively important. And we learned that lesson the hard way a couple times, you know, trying to Get in with whatever x company because they're going to give us free stuff whether it's tires that aren't quite up to par and i don't really think i need to like name any company names maybe but you know just Intense. because somebody wants to <laughs> brian's gonna name it just so gonna throw it out there
0: and they maybe don't we have should have tires actually, anymore
1: well and we could and talk this about this right on ramblings
0: case. why do we need to be pc right now nobody's paying yeah, me to do anything this is the type of stuff that people do need to know but there's a reason for it all too like we wasn't
1: and it again it's just more lessons on all this and this is why i wanted to pass it on it's like Before, that Intense had a badass four-ply tire. And we're like, cool, they've got good tires, tires, let's commit to them. Yeah, and we could have raced on those, and that would have been sweet. But that next year, unbeknownst to us, they switched to this new two-ply system. We spent basically our entire year trying to mount new tires with, you know, we had, like, this crazy air compressor system because we figured out we had to – I think we basically flatted out at half the events that year. Um, And I think St. Anne might have been one of those where we were racing on those tires, and they just were not up to it. Maybe it was the next year. I don't remember exactly, but – awful choice on our half you know we should have just stuck with tried and true maxis or whatever even if we were paying for them out of pocket or pulling them out of the trash can at the world cup events where there are other people's used tires which we're definitely famous for doing as well i'm sure we're not the only ones no nope. um other ones was marzocchi you know the that 0506 Triple Eight was sick you know and then we got into that air one should have tested it didn't work right we had not the only ones with problems that year and then you know, after that went back to the, the the regular, you know, old school coil one. That was awesome. Again, it was a great fork, but we didn't get onto the right one that year. You tested out that Kawa fork at Keystone. Kicks a butt. It was like your first, like, pro, like, podium, I think. I think you won qualifying, got third. You're riding this prototype Kawa fork. And we're like, well, if it worked that good, let's do it. You know, they, they got something going on here. This is awesome. And then the next year, the forks we got were nothing like that prototype that you were testing. And we take them to Europe, and all of a sudden we're in Europe, and that's another thing. Make sure you work with companies that you actually can get support, whether it's at the event or at least at like a local bike shop or something. So we're over there in Europe, and this cow of forks, like, were pretty good for like I don't know the first couple days, you know, we we're getting used to them back in Colorado. But then the bushings just like completely were gone, you know. So all of a sudden then we're riding these super unpredictable forks that go from like. You might get one inch of travel. You might get six. You didn't really know. Just really didn't make it easy for pushing on the confidence. And again, like not like we were saying earlier, it's not making excuses for like not performing at these events. But it's just like the lessons that were learned as far as like that when you're trying to ride at that top level. You know, free is not always best. Sometimes it's it's better to go to a few less races so you can afford to be on the gear that's actually going to help you succeed. And that's a big part of it. Something that we learned the hard way there. Another thing that happened over on that Europe trip, and our, we were riding like the same schedule, so all our bikes, like, it was funny, I remember saying, like, we're talking about it on some of those long drives, and, like, through Germany, it's like, all right, so you just broke that part, so that means that part's gonna break on my bike, like, tomorrow, and then I just broke this part, so it's about to break on your bike, because it seemed to just, like, be wearing out at the exact same rate, and we had those, uh, we had the Avalanche shocks on our uh, Rotex, which is a rad shock, very, very good shock. The shocks performed great, but what we didn't know was the way that that Rotec full floating shock works, you know, which is an awesome design, but you can't really run it with a remote reservoir shock because that hose flexes every time the bike compresses. And we didn't think about that, you know, that that design is designed so that there's a fixed point and so that way that hose, you know, to the remote reservoir doesn't flex because it's like coming off the fixed point. The other side is moving. On that Rotec both sides move, so there was no place to mount the hose where the or the reservoir where the hose didn't flex. So where were we? That was like that place with all the huge jumps in Germany, where they used to do the the race. It was. I'm trying, I can't remember the name right now. Winterberg was that no? No, no Winterberg no, no, was the one. Sorry, not our... um, Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I forget, but yeah, it was it was kind of a Wellingen. Wellingen. But yeah, 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 yeah. Well,
1: and uh, it, I think it there was right about that time. Big both jumps. of us lost our shocks. Yep. The the remote reservoirs sheared off on the hose, and no yep. no fault to avalanche i mean that was a great shock and the, the road tech it wasn't either of their fault we just realized that it wasn't the right pairing you know we shouldn't have been running that setup again you know it wasn't wasn't tested right so then after that i don't even remember what we had to do i i we got like we ended up not riding for like a week when we were over there we ended up being just like total tourists going through italy we drove through Lavino and didn't get to ride and then we ended up going over uh the pass um, remember the name of that pass and the, like through Italy and stuff, and then we went to the race in uh, one of the access cup races in where uh, where was it? in Switzerland? I'm trying to remember exactly, but uh, the one of the Scholl. Belgian team riders, I think it was school Switzerland, yeah, lent me a, a vivid, got me back on track, which was like the super awesome of them, you know, just goes to show there's always good, you know, kind of camaraderie and support in the industry, especially when you're traveling, people tend to. Really help you out just like we always tried to do at our local races people always took pretty good care of us when we were out and about and needed help to keep things going when you just have nothing else and then it was in winterberg that i ended up buying that uh like six-year-old boxer team with like total bent sanctions and everything because our kawa-, kawa forks just like completely crapped out and were completely worthless too and so i ended up buying a super old boxer team i don't remember what you ended up doing if your kawa made it through or if you oh no i crashed actually that's what i did i crashed and broke the crown So I couldn't even ride the bushing problem, had to get a different fork. But anyway, I don't want to like drag into that. This isn't, we'll stick to the positive topics and try to put a positive spin (laughs) on that. That was just coming into all that because I wanted to, that's the knowledge that if I could pass anything along to people or one of the things is just know your gear and just don't always assume that free is better. Sometimes it's, it's worth it to, to do less so that you can afford to be on the right stuff that's actually going to perform for you. And our seasons of racing too, it was a lot of the years that we took a step back and stayed more local were actually the years that we grew as riders, you know, and our, our, our abilities went up because we weren't so stretched, you know, those years that we did those world cup races were so much fun and awesome to explore, but it was actually the years that we stayed close to home where we could ride more, you know, and actually train and and work on our progression. That was probably actually more important to our, our careers in a way too. We kind of did like in every other for a while there. Because essentially we'd we'd save up, blow it, have to stay home again, save up, blow it, have to stay close to home again, but but all good stuff. It was fun. Wouldn't, I think it's important to have both sides of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty much word to the wise: if you're going to go try to make it in Europe and uh, uh, attempt at even getting down a World Cup course, uh, just make sure that your suspension and brakes work. Uh, Otherwise uh places like Port William are a bit of a nightmare.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It turns out that stuff's important.
0: <laughs> it turns out it's All right, extremely well,
1: important. I, I think I'm do doing have... a pretty good job of rambling here for yeah, you just... here, so I'll let you get on to some more of your planned questions.
0: I, they're not really planned or anything. Um I do you're I'm impressed with your rambling. Usually I'm the one complimented <laughs> as the rambler in the family, but I mean, we could go well, on. And to be on honest,
1: I, was a, little, these I was, are... was a little nervous to do this to do this podcast because I was wondering how I'd actually get any words in with you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am but I quite, listened to your ask for inspiration. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah,
1: you got I, you're the host. And you're gonna have to.
0: I know. I'm doing my best not to interject and let it come from your brain out your mouth. I don't want to influence too much but yeah so basically 2008 huge learning year backed it down 2009 2010 we started partnering with Banshee Bikes how did Banshee even you know kind of come into the fold
1: as far as the sponsor initially or with my life and working career
0: Uh, sponsor still racing 2010 where are we at this time and how did Banshee get on our radar? And then how did you so basically had, transform from a racer into where you are today?
1: So let's see, we started, I guess you already told me this cause I would have not even remembered the dates. It's good thing you did your homework, but uh, we started team Geronimo <laughs> in 2007. Um, Got to give a shout out to Ace Lane there who we were working for at the time, building trails up at Geronimo bike park, which we were creating along with Corey Ross at the time. And Ace basically kind of was a big inspiration of that. Cause he was like, Hey guys, if you can like come together, you know, I want to help you guys out and sponsor your team a little bit. And we we're like, well, sweet, let's, let's make a team. then." you know, like can't turn down this offer. This is great. He's a super supportive, you know, individual, not just a job, but also the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the desire to kind of help us athletically. So we, we started this team Geronimo thing. Geronimo was the name that his kid ski team was working on. So we were kind of the sister side of that basically created this team the first year we were with uh we kind of had a split thing going on where we were with rotech uh you and i and then the juniors were on uh, something else i don't even really quite remember at the time the uh rotech stuff was awesome zumbi
0: polish the, brand
1: zumbi yeah that's right the kids were all on zumbi the corey's connection let's see we got to the point where sully with rotech didn't have frames for a year because he was kind of working small batches and stuff so that one kind of just sort of ended due to sort of that logistical thing. You know, we always loved those bikes a lot, but we needed fresh bikes, and he was a couple of years out, I think, on making another batch. So, that year was we were gonna be with Nikolai, but some, there was just too much logistically to kind of pull that together. So we called up uh, Willie Warren, who is also a pretty huge inspiration in our our racing career. I would have to say, you know, just sort of that really? like super high energy. You know, inspiration. He was always the dude at the events having as much or more fun than anybody, you know, which I think you and I both have always try to sort of, kind of like have that same energy to a point. And so he was doing all the Kona stuff in our region, and we were like at the 11th hour. So we were like, we called him up, and he was like all for it. And so we ended up doing a season on Kona, which we, I remember going to Angel Fire with you and I, and we were like riding the Kona. So we just decided it was appropriate to basically just huck everything as big as we could because that's what you do. You know when you're ripping one of those, and I remember just yelling, riding down uh, uh, Angel Fire that first race, just yelling Kona Huck at everything, because we're just like trying to see how big we could go into all the rock gardens and just smashing through. On and those bikes were those, they treated us awesome for a year, and, and then the next year we kind of brought on some other partners with Team Geronimo, um, and uh, ended up making acquaintances with Banshee. And I remember, we went back and forth. It was a hard decision to make between a couple of really cool companies. It was um, at the time we had. Three options. I think it was Banshee, um, Canfield, and One Ghost were sort of the three that we were considering that year. And it was very challenging. They all would have been super cool and all very like, cool people to work with. And at the end of the day, we decided that we wanted to pursue the Banshee thing because we saw a lot of potential there. Didn't really know Keith or Jay as well at that point in time, but. Kind of, like, knew the products that were coming. Did a lot of like reading into what Keith had done with the uh the chaos link, which became the legend at the time. And they were gonna get us set up with some of the first legends, and we we're like, sweet, this is awesome, let's do it. And those got on those legends, and that was like just super killer bikes, and had a really great time racing on those. Then, for shoot, I don't know how long that lasted that was at least next like three or four years we were riding on the legends and wait, then wait. we so transitioned. Are,
0: are you sure that you weren't influenced by the fact that uh you know bender was sending a banshee <laughs> just a little bit
1: <laughs> uh, obviously just a little bit definitely okay yeah yeah i, mean, I figured we, okay continue. we nerded it out on all those old videos and the jaw drop and everything so i mean there was probably part of us that wanted to put super monsters on our legends at the at the, at the initial time just like i put that monster t on my old yeti back in the day but I think we uh, had a little bit more restraint at that time, and I don't actually remember what forks. Oh, we got in with Manitou at that time too, and the Hayes Group, which we ended up getting to run some of those first generation uh, of the new Dorado, which was be awesome too. It, we had some pretty killer packages those years. Did that? I remember you got to take the one of the very first ones of that down to Mech No, was it Guatemala for Pan Am champs? Remember we kind of scrambled to get those together. That was uh, the year before I got to go to Colombia? I think that next season both trying to get qualified for world cups since we, uh, they had the new requirements on the points and everything. Um, yeah, so that was kind of how we got in with Banshee it was sort of kind of just like a luck of the draw in a lot of ways. It was, it was really more product based than anything. You just kind of saw where that company was going in the direction and it was a product that we wanted to be a part of and, you know, kind of working towards a bigger line and yeah, sort of, sort of the way it all started. And for me, obviously, now that I work for him, it was a, a, a kind of pivotal, choice that we had no idea we were making at that point in time but worked out pretty good
0: so as as we were getting older and i mean we were still getting faster and we were pretty successful we started moving from downhill into enduro from 2012 to 2013 just kind of out of curiosity what really fueled uh for you what what fueled the transition what did you see in enduro versus our uh career with with Uh, honestly
1: honestly Think it was a little bit even more simple than that the the draw to enduro was the fact that we could race it in our rocky mountain region so there was a lot that happened with different series coming and going mountain states cup kind of peaked out and then you know was not really doing much with the downhill races anymore the national series had sort of moved to the coasts so there was a lot of downhill racing in the usa but it was pretty much all on the east coast for the most part um so basically i remember talking to you i think on one of our drives back to el Back to the barn where we were living at the time and basically he's like well what are we going to do next year like we don't really want to spend our whole summers on the east coast like that's basically it was either the east coast or europe as far as if downhill was going to continue to be a priority and we saw this new kind of event coming up and you know we'd done one of the first ones that was it chanel helped organize at uh rush chanel at um winter park put together one of those first enduro events that he'd kind of learned this format from racing some of these ones in europe and that was one of the first big ones in in the United States, and we enjoyed it and did relatively well at it. Actually, I believe you were—I don't know if it was that year or the next year—winning right up until the very end, last stage. And then, hey, uh, don't so rub we it dropped. In. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, I was trying to give you some props. Um, oh no, I know. <laughs>
1: so I think it was just basically our transition to enduro was almost as simple as we don't want to spend our whole summer on the East Coast. Like we like it here in the Rockies nothing against the east coast and the guys that live out there they've got a killer riding scene and stuff but it wasn't home for us at the time and we wanted to kind of be in our home range and it was like well we can do enduro seems like the companies you know banshee was all for it because they saw it as a growing kind of market for them um so we got in that was kind of when the the spitfire v1 was our first bike and then we got into some rune v2s after that and so that's right when 650b was becoming a thing actually we had that initial prime too which in hindsight we probably should have been racing that one you know originally but the rune was also a, a rad ride too and so we got on those rune v2s with the 650b wheels that was kind of where things really started taking off for us and yeah really it was just because we wanted to be in colorado and the rockies and ride in our mountains and i think that's really where enduro started picking up for us
0: it was a I bit of a socioeconomic really, decision if you will
1: it was a little bittersweet, I think, for all of us, because I think all of us really had a ton of passion and still do for downhill, but it was just almost more based on logistics and just reality of what we could do, you know, and it was sort of like, exactly that it was like, spend all summer on the East Coast racing downhill bikes or just give this Enduro thing a try. And, you know, I think also, yeah, we kind of, as team managers at the time, saw it as maybe a good smart move for... For sponsorship as well, as far as kind of continuing to grow our support level, because that's where the companies were pretty eager to support was in that enduro realm.
0: I'll I'll be honest here, Michael. I uh, all I saw were dollar bill signs. I
1: just
0: <laughs> like a moth to well, a fire, man. I was just <laughs> right in there. That's that's I'm yeah. Joking.
1: That's the cycling industry in general. I mean, it's just it's just tons of money everywhere. I was
0: trying to figure <laughs> out how to make a career. Basically, I I, I did actually <laughs> consider that. I, I thought, hey, maybe I could actually get paid for this sort of thing but yeah. well, that was just a small part of it that was a small yeah. part i always
1: felt pretty proud of what we did with the drama that was part of the reason we started that was because we saw the ability to combine our resources and do more as a team than we could as individuals and you know we never never really like made anything but we got to the point where we were supporting ourselves on the team and you know at the end of the year you know once we'd sell off all our equipment maybe be able to like pay off a credit card a little bit <laughs> so you know, it got to the point where it was kind of self-sustained. It was challenging because then, you know, you, you, the other six months out of the year is when we were really trying to, like, actually work to, you know, survive. And that's, I think, one of the differences that, you know, people would, depending on when they get into racing, you know, starting in our, you know, later teens for you and twenties for me, you know, we always had very, very supportive parents who were awesome and always, you know, willing to step in, but kind of personality too, like wanted to do it without taking advantage of anything or or you know asking for too much so you know when I'm here I am at 25 trying to pursue this racing career so it's like that means six months out of the year is like crack you know putting the head down and actually working so that you know because racing wasn't paying the rent that's for sure or the bills or anything like that so that had to come you know the other half of the year which had an awesome job ski coaching at the time which worked out perfect for that because it was contracted for six or seven months and could switch over and, you know, kind of do that for a little bit of time and kind of made it all worthwhile and so then switch back to biking. We made it tough in the in the uh, the spring because we didn't really get to ride a whole lot for three, four months out of the year. So it was always sort of like coming off of that, that seasonal switch and then trying to get back into it. But I don't know. It seemed to work out pretty good.
0: Yeah, I'd say so. I think we uh, were fortunate and lucky to fall into some of the work situations that we did that allowed us to yeah. flexibly – pursue our, uh, our racing, uh, passion yeah. and, and, uh, goals, um, and for a while. So. A big
1: part of that. Yeah. Was, yeah so know, towards,
0: th- uh, I guess the job
1: we did work in the summers, you know, for ACE in the trail building, that was a huge part of it too. We had a yeah. cheap place to live there and everything. So that all made yeah. a lot of it possible.
0: The, the setup was, all, was pretty conducive.
1: It was all very much by design. You know, we had to really kind of strategically put everything in place to kind of pull off what we did there for a while, but worked out pretty good. You know, I only bring okay. that up, it's, you know, it's, it's something that everybody has to go through at some point in time, you know, it's, everything's carefree and happy when you're 18 and, you know, you know, mom and dad's stocking the food with or the fridge with food. Once you're out in the, in the world, I think you see it with a lot of athletes, you know, where they kind of have those, like those years where everything just comes so easy and then life starts. And it's, I'm always impressed when you see people that actually can make a full career out of it just, you know, because of, you know, knowing what we know as far as what goes into it. You know, and managing a team was definitely there was we had some glory years where we didn't have to manage. And those were the best, you know, because it just takes so much like some pressure or no, no, just pressure. It's just time. It's all just time. It's really what time it comes in, down to.
0: Time and preparation uh, for sure. You know, right as we were pursuing enduro and 2013, 2014 was humming along, we were doing the local the big mountain enduro series you started having some chats with Banshee about, uh, doing some, some more kind of work oriented things or, or potentially a future outside of, of racing. Uh, what did that kind of well, look honestly, like? Well,
1: honestly, to be honest about that, I got to give you a lot of credit for that because I think you were actually very important with that. Cause you did a much better job than I did as far as like staying in touch. I think in that sense, you know, we'd, you and I had kind of talked about maybe doing like a rep company and kind of bringing in a couple of different products or something. And you saying that then, I uh,
0: serve a commission. <laughs> <laughs> I do I get believe <laughs> that the, uh,
1: the, the, the bike equipment that you're currently riding is probably a little bit of that.
0: <laughs> Keep, I'll give it to you. On, I'll, I'll give keeping it to you. The whole family
1: you. on good bikes. Yeah. Continue. yeah we, well, we, kinda, well, we tossed around those ideas, you know, and it, it never really kind of went, anywhere with that and then you know kind of took a step back from racing i guess it would have been more what year is it now 2014 ish 13 14 kind of i started sort of wrapping it up a little bit you were still maybe doing a little bit more than i was but kind of was taking a step back decided to just kind of do some more stuff in life i wanted to have some time to do river trips and i was getting into kayaking and i had a blast racing but just kind of you know decided that i wanted to spend more time with my new wife at the time sandy and uh get away from you know just spending all my time at the races you know we were kind of starting our new life together and you know so that was part of it you know it's just kind of like just life happens type of thing but it was all good stuff as far as moving into that next thing and so kind of took a step I was really was away from it for a while and just kind of figuring out where to do we had the opportunity to buy a house which was you know big step you know in the right direction but it kind of also meant being a little bit more serious and making sure that there was consistent income coming in to pay those mortgages. And that's just the life side of life and uh, kind of looking at different options. And I remember we're still t- talking about the rep thing. and then you actually met with Keith, I want to say in Whistler and kind of put a bug in his ear and kind of told me about it and I followed up with them and I, one thing led to another. And like six months later, they were basically, instead of like being product reps they were offering me a a full-time job and I was like well sweet that would blew away everything I was hoping for which was awesome and you know just kind of it all sort of just sort of fell into place and I remember at the time it felt super in a lot of ways rewarding because we had put so much time and energy and effort into the racing you know and and then here we are kind of 30 I was 30 at the time we had just gotten married you know, looking at a lot of my peers who had like these professional jobs, you know, I had a career, I had a degree in marketing and stuff. So, for it to actually come full circle and have everything that we poured into the racing for all those years to turn into a, a job was actually pretty rad, you know. And I knew I wasn't going to, I really loved ski coaching, but I wasn't going to do that forever. And it was, it was pretty cool for it to just like transition that, that direction. So, that was the beginning of things for Banshee.
0: Banshee is <laughs> a relatively small company, they, they, uh, they only have, you know, I, I guess technically four. At know, the time they employees. were
1: three, they brought me on. Believe, and then you before. made four four. And we're actually, we're back down to three at this point. So three full-time employees.
0: So yeah, you, you guys all have to kind of wear different hats, uh, from yeah. time to time, just kind of going over the last four years, you know, what are some of the things that you find yourself doing on the day to day? You're in the mountain bike industry now. You're stoked. You kind of landed your dream job, uh it's it's super rewarding to see where the racing has taken you full circle now now where do you find yourself traveling to and what are you doing you know day to day throughout the year well
1: it's kind of yeah it's super cool because you know as far as the traveling start on that you know i did some more mountain bike coaching after the fact and then with banshee so it's it's been really fun to go back to some of these events from a uh non-competitor side of things and i i really enjoy being at some of these events kind of as a uh as a job you know like kind of there to promote a product or to you know be with team racers or whatnot so i've got to spend we didn't go last year but two years before I got to go to Crankworks works so we got back to europe you know kind of in a totally different capacity you know being there and just being able to kind of relax and 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 not have to compete but you kind of just take it all in that sense, domestically do some demo stuff this year hopefully some more stuff will pick up now that we've got a new product to push but for a few years there teaming up with uh, another Colorado company which is where I'm based but we team up with MRP since we're such a small company you know need to sort of pool the resources to be able to get to some of these events and super fun going out to like Sedona and Moab and Fruta and getting to just hanging out with like people that are in a again a completely different part of the the industry people that are just riding for fun and being out there with people that are just riding to ride and going to these events and getting people set up on bikes and trying to help everybody have a good time and so that's kind of where the travels have gone. Beyond that, you know, it's a job like any other. We always kind of joke about this because you'd be like, "What are you doing? What's what's going on? What's so fun in the mountain bike industry right now?" I'm like, "Oh, just working on you know, like spreadsheets and inventory management and updating my uh, you know uh, software here. And I got I got to do some accounting reconciliation. And so yeah, you know, it's it's fun because I'm I'm definitely using everything I've learned over the years and the degree and you know running team geronimo you know i feel like you and i got like a business education out of that as well so you know it's it's a job like any other but the cool thing is that it's an awesome product so that makes it so much better and i think that's one place where i'm super lucky to have the job that i have because it's a product that i'd like truly stand behind and i think one of the cool one of the things that i can say that speaks to that more than anything is i've been riding banshees almost exclusively now for 10 years and i have no like desire for anything else in a lot of ways try to write other stuff to just see what it's all about but like i love the product that i'm writing so i love to sell that to other people you know everybody was like oh so you're a salesman and i was like well my style of salesman is to give people the information they need so they can make a choice that they're stoked on like i I hate hard sales i'm not a hard sales guy but i want to give people the The ability to to decide if it's the right product for them, and when they decide that, they're going to love it because it's a sweet product and it's awesome to have people out there enjoying it.
0: So you're not you're not always just out and about riding a bike and slinging high fives to uh, to people. There's there's definitely a lot that goes into it.
1: It's a rad product and it's a rad group of people. That's what really makes it, and that's that's one of the big industries to work in, or reasons to work in an industry that you love and are passionate about. 'Cause there's there is what there is as far as any job, but to like be able to work with people that are like minded and to be able to sell a product that is awesome is super cool. And it also comes back to just the whole work life balance and everything. You know, I work for the with the two people, Jay McNeil and Keith Scott, who are the owners of Banshee and myself at this point, they're, you know, super just open minded as far as like good life balance. You know, they we all encourage each other to, you know, get out of the office and go for a ride and you know, make sure that we're still staying engaged in the sport that we're doing and not just like kind of getting stuck into the nine to five. So, you know, I actually the last few weeks I've been so lucky in Colorado. We've had these weather spells where in a single week, I've been riding my mountain bike once or twice. I've been Nordic skiing, uh, skate and classic. I've been Alpine skiing and I've been snowboarding. So I've been basically getting like just kind of rotating through the day. I make a point of just getting out of the office for an hour or two, and going out and just like enjoying the world that, you know, I get to live in being here in Colorado, which is so awesome. And uh, it's kind of funny. I was talking to a friend the other a couple of weeks ago. Something came up about sneaking out midday for a ride, you know, which I do a lot. And for one reason, I think I work better when I come back from it, too. Everybody probably knows that you wake your brain up. But he kind of starts going into this sort of, yeah, you know, it's 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 really about, you know, work life balance and kind of just like kind of going to go into like that coaching moment. And then he looked at me, He was like, oh, wait, never mind that's like your entire life like you've got you've got that figured out that whole like you know work-life balancing which is kind of it was cool to hear him say that for sure because you know a good friend of mine is like yeah i don't I, that's not one of the things i need to try to convince you of like, and that's that's a big part of doing this job is having the, the flexibility and, and living where we do you know and being able to 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 make every day like vacation in a way you know it's like some people, a lot of people go on vacation to be here, and we just have to make a point of enjoying it as much as we can while we're doing
0: everything else. You know what? It's always good to have some uh, some affirmation that uh, what you're doing is what you should be doing. So to kind of you know take that on a high note, let's uh, unless you have any other things to add to your current um, industry position or experience we can move on to uh some of the conclusion questions here yeah i don't know
1: anything i think that's pretty much good to go there
0: do you have any anything uh
1: anything funny you wanted to talk about or uh i feel like i've been like super serious here on most of my ramblings i don't know if we need to lighten this up for the listeners here make some jokes
0: well you've always been one of the smartest people i know and so you're always relatively enlightening and, and and anyone that talks to you gets uh it's a good education uh, if they want to just you know feel like they're burning brain cells they turn to me but <laughs> since, since you know since i think uh, you know we're transitioning here i've got these questions to where i'm going to ask these to all, all of my guests so we'll get relatively different answers per so it, it'll be interesting it'll be symbiotic in that nature but uh for right now, they're just called the conclusion, the ride on rambling conclusional questions or something stupid like that. So let me know if, if, if you can think of anything better, because that was terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. But can, all right. You ready? Yeah. Are you ready? OK, we got five questions. questions. Question number one. These can be relatively short answer. What does the future of mountain biking look like? That's supposed to be rapid fire. I'm bad at these. Relatively my, rapid fire. This let's, is my uh,
1: weakness.
0: Let's narrow it down. Ten years out. What's it look like?
1: Uh, ten years out. Bigger. Bigger. Is this is this supposed to be single word association, or I'm giving real answers here? You,
0: you can give a single word, or you can give a, a sentence. Ten already. years out.
1: Yeah, I think the scene is going to continue to grow, just as it has. It's getting much more like common for people to have real legit bikes technology is improving maybe not so much leaps and bounds as far as technology right now this well it is in a lot of ways but like it's becoming more and more accessible so i think in 10 years it's just going to be even more accessible to everybody prices are going to kind of i'd say go up and down but there's going to be a place for everybody and e-bikes are going to definitely continue to grow big time which is something we don't make but something i I see a lot of people getting into and I think it's going to change the sport and the fact that it's going to make it more accessible to a lot more people, whether people like it or, or hate it. There's some purists that hate e-bikes, but I don't think that's going anywhere. And I think that's going to change the sport more than anything over the next 10 years.
0: Right on. Perfect. And to uh, transition right into question number two, what is your favorite mountain bike component or piece of mountain bike gear?
1: Favorite piece of mountain bike gear.
0: Or a component.
1: I'm going to have to go with my 5'10 shoes.
0: Stealth rubber for the win. Yeah. Question number three. What is your favorite mountain bike destination, and where do you want to go next?
1: Someplace I've never been before. So that's cool. kind of... Uh, I, I don't know how that can be my favorite, but that's where I want to go next. Oh, that's my okay. favorite thing to My favorite thing to do is to experience new places. So and it's really kind of have- the way I... Uh, I definitely do. You know some of my favorite trails in the world are right out my back door, which is awesome. Um, I'd love to... Shoot, that's a tough question. Where where is that back door
0: by the way? Where are you?
1: Netherland, Colorado. Cindy and I have an awesome house in Netherland, you know, which is where we kind of grew up and came back home and We have basically a playground in our backyard, which is awesome.
0: So where do you want to go next?
1: Where do I want to, as I said, somewhere new, somewhere I've never been before. I don't know where I want to go next. Go to South America.
0: Question number four, if you were like Marty McFly and can travel back in time to have a chat with yourself at age 17, what would you say?
1: <laughs> I think I'd go back to what I was talking about earlier and tell my 17-year-old self free isn't always better. <laughs>
0: And then, uh, if you could only one, uh, if you could only ride one bike for the rest of your life, what would it be?
1: One bike for the rest of my life, what would it be? Probably the Banshee Rune V3, 170 mil fork on it. At this oh. point, something coil probably, because that bike literally can do everything I'd ever wanted to do to some to some extent. The so one bike to do it all. And you know do. we're in an awesome we're in an awesome day and age where there's a lot of bikes that can hit that mark but I don't think it gets any better than that one.
0: Well, I appreciate you having uh, some time to chat with me today or should I say ramble.
1: Yeah. I think I, I think I did a a lot of rambling there. Hopefully it wasn't too much rambling for your listeners. Job.
0: I think we Hopefully kept I it relatively
1: slowly and clearly <laughs> enough for everyone to understand me. <laughs>
0: Uh, I was
1: speaking English, not Spanish, so hopefully it didn't sound too fast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right, Michael, don't. Next blow time we'll do it. It's doing good. Next time we'll do an
1: interview in Spanish. Actually, we'll really blow it.
0: You know, after you come back from uh, your trip from to South, South America, America trip, let's do it. Trip, yeah, you can, you, can all, bit. you can tell us all about your your uh, adventure in South America. But until then,
1: which is yet to be planned, so we'll see what happens there. <laughs>
0: Perfect. Well, ride on. Have a good day shredding some powder.
1: Sounds great. Yeah, we're going to get out and uh, we just got a foot and a half of snow last night. So this afternoon before the mountain closes down, we're going to go get a hold of some of that.
0: I know, man. What the hell are you Heart- doing inside talking to me? Let's go. Cheers.
1: Yeah, have a good one. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in today and I hope that you all found my interview with my brother as insightful and fun as I did. It was pretty cool to listen to his point of view as we both experienced a lot of the same things from our upbringing, our background with mountain bikes, how we got into racing, and where we've gone from there into his position with Banshee Bikes USA and the mountain bike industry as a whole. I think there is quite a few little tidbits in there, some words to live by that uh, we can all take away, especially the younger generation. So with that, till next time, ride on.